This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome, everybody, to the Definitely Uncertain podcast. My name is Darren Rockman, and I am a partner at Goldwell Capital, the 21-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors in Israel and around the world. Today is the 18th of May, 2021, and I am very pleased to have with me on the podcast today, once again, Jeffrey Sachs, who is the head of EMEA Investment Strategy at City Private Bank, coming to us Hi, from uh, London. Great to see you again. Great to see you, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It was great last time. Looking forward to this one uh, as well. So um, we have been in a bull market in equities now for as long as um, really since the uh, pandemic. Um, well, we're going to start that question again. Um, we've been in a bull market in equities really since um, March, April uh, last year, uh, 2020. Uh, that bull market really uh, was focused largely on the tech sector, uh, but over the time, it has changed and has moved and morphed. And one of the areas that has been perhaps a story that's been a little bit under the radar has been the European story um, and the European equity story. Uh, so, Jeffrey, uh, before we sort of look at the details of what's happening within uh, markets, let's just talk about the pandemic uh, in Europe. So what are you seeing? Is it under control? Are we reaching herd immunity? When's that expected to happen? Well, in the UK, the containment process last year did not go well, but the vaccine progress from December last year has been outstanding. And we're expecting that within a month, we're going to have close to herd immunity within the UK. And in Europe, the vaccine progress has been slightly slower. They're six to eight weeks behind, but there's a growing momentum. About 300 million European vaccines are, are likely to be uh, applied this quarter, and they'll reach herd immunity by the autumn of this year. Okay, so well, well progressed. Not quite as far as hit as Israel, but well progressed uh, nevertheless. So given that, what do you see as the outlook for growth in the European region? It's improving strongly. We're in the early stages of what's going to be a really powerful rebound. Just briefly, the downturn was worse in Europe and the UK than elsewhere, partly because in Europe, the tourism sector is an important part of GDP, about 15% in many countries. In the UK, services make up 80% of the economy that really took a severe downturn because of the nature of COVID. But now, looking forward, we firstly got significant policy support that's ongoing, governments and central banks. They're telling us it's going to be accommodative through the emergency and beyond. But we've also now got, with the vaccine progress, the very strong likelihood of more mobility leading to pickups in both services and tourism at a time when there's clearly pent up demand and also high savings have been built up over the last 12 months. Some of that is likely to be put to work as well. So the rebound is going to be in the region of 4.5% in Europe and slightly higher than that in the UK for this year. Okay, so a good background, both in terms of policy and also the, the fundamental economy. How does that reflect in company profits and earning per share forecasts uh, into the rest of this year and then into next? 
Well, the great thing, Darren, is that it's feeding through very directly into earnings per share growth. In Europe, it's likely to be on average 40% EPS growth this year. And in the UK, high 40s this year. And then we're starting to look forward to next year's earnings forecast. It's going to be another good year of 15 to 20% average EPS growth. Wow. So so that that's really quite uh stunning. But you know if we then look at uh the sort of price moves in in European equities so both in in continental Europe and the UK markets uh, were sort of hit lows around November time they they've uh appreciated about 10% um since then. Uh, so you know how much further do you see there is to go in terms of of, of an equity rebound in Europe? When we first went overweight in UK and Europe in November last year, that was before the Brexit trade deal and before there was signs of a vaccine. We were confident because the valuations were so depressed. We felt at the very least there was scope for a trading rebound. Then we trebled the size of the UK overweighting in March and we kept the overweighting in Europe. In the, view, in the belief that the rebound would be the start of a long-term bull market. That was based on, firstly, the strong recovery in earnings that we talked about. Secondly, low rates for longer, which is supporting the valuation argument. It keeps the discount rate for valuing equities low. Thirdly, we look at the relative versus fixed income valuation, the yield gap and it's particularly attractive at around 2.5% in Europe and the UK. So that should encourage flows from fixed income into the region. And then finally, when we look at the political backdrop, we think it's benign. So it's those factors in combination that make us think they're substantially further in in the bull market to go in both Europe and the UK. Okay. So uh, is this time different? Because we've looked at the European story on multiple occasions as being a potential outperformer. And unfortunately, I think lots of investors have been disappointed by that. So why would it actually be different this time around? It is different. Uh, Europe has disappointed because in the past, it's disappointed on the growth front and had political concerns. Uh, Now, this time, when we look at the growth outlook, we think there's a new engine of growth, and that's green energy. This is something that is becoming more uh, prominent globally, and Europe is leading the way. And the carbon reduction targets in Europe are more aggressive than other areas. And now with the EU recovery fund, the 750 billion euro fund, uh, a significant portion of that is also going to be invested in green-related areas. So you've got, in Europe, a new growth engine. And in the UK, you've got a significant growth engine in the months ahead through significant infrastructure spending as the Conservative government looks to implement what they said they'd do in in their last manifesto at the last December 2019 election, which was to level up the country. So you've got the growth engines. And then when we look at the political side in both Europe and the UK, we don't see headwinds. We think the German election is going to be benign. We think the Scottish election in the UK was not a market moving event in any way. Okay. So you start start to touch on the UK. So let's take our focus there. 
Uh, you used the B word, Brexit, a minute ago. Uh, is Brexit really behind us? Are uh, now there trade agreements in place, which is going to support the country getting back to uh, growth after many years of suffering with uncertainty? It's almost behind us. There's a couple of headwinds that are still ahead. But when you look at the expectations for Brexit going back six months, we've got a much better scenario now than had been expected. And, and that's what's not priced. But let's just focus on a couple of areas that are still challenging. Firstly, you've got ongoing admin and logistical issues on, on the borders. We think that those issues are gradually being resolved through better use of technology. That's number one. Secondly, there is pressure to implement the Northern Irish Protocol, which is part of the withdrawal agreement, without impacting on the Good Friday Agreement, which keeps the peace between Northern Ireland and, and Southern Ireland. And we think that that issue is gradually going to be resolved through diplomatic channels. Both sides have got it in their best interest to make sure that the Irish Sea border gradually uh, gets um, a, a softer approach with exports from the UK to Northern Ireland. That, that's the key thing. Okay. I think the third area that we're looking out for is a services agreement that would include financial services. Of course, okay. the Brexit deal was only on trade. And there's a long way to go on that front. And the good thing is that both sides are engaged. The, the critical thing was in December, they came to a deal. So they left as as friends and, and uh, neighbors. So the services negotiations are very much ongoing. And we expect it's going to be several months before we get something concrete. But the trend is uh, decent and, and not particularly market moving at this stage. Okay. So um, Brexit, uh, for all intents and purposes, from an investor perspective, is a done deal is what you're saying with some with some holes that need to be patched up uh, as we move forward which you think will happen um you're uh bullish about the uk as an investment area it's something that we've discussed um also uh, before the podcast um how would you go about playing uh, the uk market how does an investor take advantage of what you're seeing as gdp growth and an improved uh environment and, and government support well, the great thing is that the UK is a superb play on everything we're recommending at a global level. So firstly, we're recommending investors to move from defensive areas into cyclical areas. And the UK market is made up of 63% of market cap in, in cyclicals. So that's areas like materials, industrials, energy. Secondly, at a global level, we're recommending a shift from growth to value. Typically, value does well when yield curves steepen and long bond yields rise, which they are. And the UK has got around 58% of market cap in value. And that includes the financial sector, where you've actually got genuine deep value with potential catalysts. That's maybe right. something we can elaborate on. The third area that we like is the dividend yield that you can get in the UK. The average is 4%. In a world of financial repression where yields are so low and below rates of inflation, we're having to work harder to generate income in portfolios. And the dividend yield in the UK really stands out at a time when companies are now confident in resuming dividend payments. So it's those three areas that for us stand out. Okay. Um, on an, at an index level, so let, let's just have a look at the FTSE 100 and then the FTSE 250. So the FTSE 100 tends to be 
impacted by global trends. You've got global companies in there, uh, lots of foreign earnings. The 250, much more domestic. Um, but when you look at the 250, it's had a massive run-up um, over the last few months. Uh, you know, I think something uh, in the range of uh, 25 or 30 percent. So, you know, how would where, where would you be focusing an investor's attention? Would it be the sort of more the, the bigger end with the with the more global companies, or the smaller end where maybe there's already been a lot of appreciation? It depends on the investor's current exposure to the UK. If it's currently low or nothing, they should be looking at the FTSE 100 for the uh, beta and also for the exposure to international areas that you mentioned and the three areas that I touched on, cyclicals, value, dividend deal. They're, they're very prominent within the FTSE 100. The stocks are liquid and ownership levels are generally low. So we're likely to see any buying uh, followed by further buying. The momentum on the technical side is, is very, very strong. Okay. Now, for investors who are already weighted in the UK, we are recommending that they diversify into the FTSE 250. It certainly gives you that domestic pickup that you touched on. And we're seeing anecdotally the domestic picture is very, very strong. Uh, friends looking to buy houses are unable to, to do uh, viewings because there's no supply. Um, so you've got this powerful pickup in, in all areas of the economy and the mid-cap space, which is the FTSE 250, is particularly exposed. The, the rally, as you mentioned, is significant, but actually, firstly, is small relative to US mid-caps that rallied by about 80% right. from the COVID lows. And secondly, in valuation terms, the multiple is at a premium to the FTSE 100, but a smaller multiple than it typically reaches during the mid-stage of a bull market. So we think there's further multiple expansion ahead with the, the further price appreciation that we're expecting to, to match the US, but also be really well supported by earnings growth. So when we look at the breakdown of that 50% average EPS growth, mid-caps are, are particularly prominent in helping to drive that. Okay, interesting. Um, now let's look at the currency aspect of this, because obviously the pound, uh, pound dollar and pound euro uh, are going to play a factor in this. Um, there's been quite a lot of pressure on the dollar over the last sort of uh, few months. Um, the the the, the uh, UK market is that going to be negatively affected if that trend continues, or is that going to be a benefit for dollar investors who want to put money into uh, into uh, the UK? Well, firstly, we do think that the dollar in the second half of the year will resume its long-term downtrend. And we do think that the euro and sterling will be two cross rates that actually benefit as the dollar okay. weakens. Will they be headwinds? Our view is no. If you look at the UK historically, there's been that inverse correlation with a stronger sterling leading to a weaker FTSE 100 because of the significant export sure. exposure. But if you look more recently, that inverse correlation has broken down and st a strong sterling is moving with a strong market. And we think that's likely to continue because ownership of both is so low and pent up demand for both is high. So we're starting to see accumulation of all UK assets simultaneously. That's sterling equities, also property, also gilts where you can get good duration. We think for a period of a few months at least, all will move up together. So, so no it's, 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 a, it's a confidence thing. 
It's absolutely a confidence thing uh, now that we're through the worst of both Brexit and COVID with ownership levels particularly low. And we actually saw that pent-up demand just after the December 19 election and just before COVID began. And then it went uh, on ice for a period of months and is now resuming that pent-up demand and really now reflected in strong inflows. With regard to the euro, uh, we do think we'll have a stronger euro in the coming months, perhaps to 125 against the US dollar. And we don't think it's going to be a significant headwind for the market because the earnings will significantly offset the appreciation uh, aspect. So in, in net terms, uh, we think the euro returns will be very, very strong. I think one final thing, Darren, is that for overseas investors looking at both markets, they no longer need to consider hedging because of these strong currency backdrops. And right. that's actually been a consideration for quite some time when they've looked at this region. And it, it's no longer that, that serious consideration. Okay. So, so in your view, you're getting a double whammy. Uh, you're getting a, on the positive side, you're getting a cheap market uh, with, with, with good fundamentals underpinning it. And then you also have the potential for currency appreciation, which will improve, obviously, the value of your holding if you're a dollar investor, certainly, uh, and not necessarily have to pay the price you paid once upon a time uh, in, in, you know, in lower markets as, as the pound uh, strengthened. Very much so. It's, in fact, similar to what we've seen from many emerging markets over the years. When yeah. there's been inflows, it's tended to, to be with... Uh, reflected in strong currencies and equities at the same time. Okay. And these, this region is going to act like emerging markets over the next few months. Well, who, who would have imagined the UK is an emerging market? Queen Victoria will be rolling in her grave, I think. Um, um, let, let, let's just touch on, uh, you, you mentioned before bonds. Um, you know, there's been a lot of central bank buying, um, both at the corporate and the sovereign level. Are, are you expecting yields to go lower from here? Yes, we are. It's astonishing to say that, given where we've come from. But the, the weight of central bank buying is so significant relative to the size of available bonds at a time when there's also this ongoing financial repression, which means that investors are scrambling to find anything that's positive yielding, even if it's very, very low. So it's reflected, for example, in the new issuance market, where we're getting companies issuing high yield and, and investment grade at really modest uh, coupons. They, and that's why they're looking to do it, refinancing it at lower levels. But in almost every instance, they've been heavily oversubscribed and the aftermarkets have been strong because investors need to buy anything that's positive yielding. So when you look at the European environment, the average investment grade uh, yield is about 70 basis points, it could, it's wow. historically low, it can move lower still. Right. And in high yield, it could move from the average of about 2.8 down to at least 2.5, assuming uh, 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 the, the ongoing... Jeffrey, we're going to have to rename it because that's not what the word high in high yield was supposed to uh, supposed to indicate. Maybe we just go, go back to calling them junk bonds. It's a very good point. Uh, and, you know, when we use the word high, it's certainly high relative to the cost of money. And um, that's what we think is a key driver over the coming months. So, yes, okay. very low yields, but they'll go lower still. Okay. And to round off, you mentioned green energy as being an area of growth uh, for Europe uh, and the UK. 
you know, give us a couple of examples and, and why is this really important? You know, is this a this is a fundamental part of the market or is it going to be a fundamental part of the market? Well, it's becoming a global imperative to tackle the problem. And in November of this year, in the UK, the Global Climate Conference is being chaired by Boris Johnson. And he's going to be setting the agenda with a very strong UK position on climate change and, and tackling it, which he already has, has partly done in recent months. And he'll be working with his European and US allies to come up with a, a joint agenda that tackles the problem. Uh, Joe Biden, as president, is a very strong advocate. So that's also going to just reinforce the importance. But I think there's another aspect to it. I think uh, you've got the pressure on uh, governments to find new avenues for growth. And they, uh, many are looking at infrastructure related areas and many of those are green energy related. And they're doing so at a time when the cost of funding has never been lower as we've already talked about. So it makes enormous sense for governments to increasingly shift the burden of growth away from the central banks towards fiscal policy. And a lot of that is gonna be through green initiatives. I think one, one final attraction for Europe is that you're going to get partial funding of this through the issuance of European sovereign bonds collateralized by the, the ECB. And that's going to be a first. So you're going to get a whole new asset class that is going to be, we think, very well received. And then when you look at the micro level, you've now got a growing universe of companies that are now tried and tested over five to 10 years. And many are now significant in market cap terms, delivering quarter after quarter in terms of growth. Uh, so we're finding more micro ways at the stock level to play the theme, as well as what's upcoming in bond issues. Right. The, the skeptical, and, and I'll be a little bit contrarian here, the skeptical might say, well, all that's fine and well, but the cost of green regulation uh, maybe outweighs uh, the benefit that this is having for the European economy. How, how would you respond to that? Well, the, the cost is partly being borne by the recovery fund in Europe, a large portion of which is grants that are being allocated to uh, needy countries. So that, that cost for those countries is, is very, very low. I think in, in, when you look at the, the cost benefit, you also need to take into account that the base level of, of output and potential growth in the region is low. It's starting from a position where we don't have a huge technology sector that's thriving as, as we've got in, in the US and, and that's yeah. what's driven that, that market, of course. So the region is really seeking a, a new avenue for growth and they're going to bear some cost in, in getting started, but it's the long-term outlook that governments will be looking at. And that's what we as investors and what, what we're advising our clients to do is take that long-term view with this area and all and that also implies take a long-term view with your European and UK equity exposures because this will be an important part. Okay. Well, Jeffrey Sachs, that was fantastic. Um, really uh, enjoyed having you again uh, on Definitely Uncertain. And we, we do look forward uh, to next time because every time uh, it's super insightful and clear. Uh, so uh, thanks everybody for watching this episode of the podcast. 
Uh, you can uh, get the podcast, both audio and video, uh, wherever you get your podcasts and also on YouTube. Uh, thank you to Jeffrey uh, for uh, giving his time to us today. Thanks uh, again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on future podcasts uh, coming your way. Thanks, everybody. Thanks very much for having me, Darren. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>